and I thought just before Christmas that it would be uh, a challenge and a good idea to go through the Ten Commandments after we finish Titus, but you've got until tomorrow lunchtime to put any other suggestions because the more reading I've been doing is getting a bit bogged down in it. So we may be starting one, uh, the, the Ten Commandments next Sunday night. I've been reading some good stuff on it, but who knows, we might just leave it a little bit. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you uh, for your goodness. Thank you uh, for your word. And we just pray that you will, you will create in us that humility to come before you, the living God. Not thinking we have all the answers, not thinking we know everything. But humbly, we will come and ask you to speak to us. And that by your Holy Spirit, you will um, make it clear to us what this passage is saying to us tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was off in December, nursing my leg better, um, I remember putting the television on one morning and Good Morning Britain appeared on ITV. Um, it is called Good Morning Britain, isn't it? Um, they've changed it all. They, they, Adrian Childs and that fancy lady were drafted from the one show and it all went wrong. So they thought, how can we rival BBC One? Well, Good Morning Britain is basically like the 80s and 90s, what, what, what I grew up on. And I thought the only thing it's missing is Mr. Motivator. Do you remember Mr. Motivator? Wasn't he ace? I, I remember watching a YouTube clip of Mr. Motivator as an adult and thought the only thing that came to mind was, has he been CRB checked? Because he just thought, oh, you shouldn't be doing this here. He just looked, he looked revolting, some of the moves he used to do at that time of morning. But I was thinking about it in this chapter. What are the things that motivate us? What motivates you? What are the things that we hold on to or are obsessed with or get us going to actually do something? What are our motivations? Well, in my uh, weekly reading of Psychology Today, can I just say, get on the website. It's brilliant. I get more illustrations now out of this. It's the best website ever. A lot of it is sense. Yeah, it's just Tyson's internet site. It's a website. It's great. Psychology Today. It does let me read what they say about motivation. I think it's really interesting, this. Motivation is literally the desire to do things. It's the difference between waking up before dawn to pound the pavement and lazing, and lazing around the house all day. I obviously haven't got much motivation. It's the crucial element in setting and attaining goals. And research, research shows that you can influence your own levels of motivation and self-control. So figure out what you want, power through the pain period, and start being who you want to be. Well, did you hear that little bit? It's the crucial element, motivation, in setting and attaining goals. So... What's your crucial element? I was thinking about that. What's my crucial element? What's your crucial element? What's the one thing that drives you, that gets you going, that motivates you to do things? Because really, that's the heart of what chapter 3 is in uh, the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Paul says in Titus 3 that the truth of the gospel should be the crucial element for every Christian that causes us to pursue godliness and do works of righteousness, to do good deeds. Well, there's three things that Paul urges Titus to do in Korean. It's really good because it comes straight from the text. Verse 1, remind the people. Verse 8, stress these things. And verse 9, avoid foolish controversies. 
So remind the people, stress these things, and avoid foolish controversies. And as we'll see, I hope we see tonight clearly, that it is the gospel that will determine our motivation. It is the gospel that will determine our motivation to do good, to to live for Christ, to serve his people. And it is the gospel that will be our motivation to grow in godliness. Because to forget the gospel, to forget the grace of God, to forget all that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus will lead to the opposite, will lead to wrong motivations, which was probably the issue in Crete at the time, and ultimately will lead into ungodliness. So remind the people, stress these things, avoid foolish controversies. Let's look at the first one in verses 1 to 3. Remind the people. In chapter 2, as we saw last week, verse 15, Paul states to Titus, These then are the things that you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anybody despise you. So authority is on his mind. It's on Paul's mind as he's thinking. And he sort of says, really, because we put the brakes in the Bible. We put, uh, Tommy, I'm going to move this from here and put it on here. It won't fit around there, Tommy. Have you seen the size of it? How's that? Is that better? Let's see if that's it. It's frustrating, isn't it? Um, Authority is obviously on his mind. We put the gaps in. There's never these gaps and chapter breaks in the Greek. We put them in. So you can see there's a bit of a flow. Look, teach with all authority. So he's thinking about authority, he's thinking about changed lives, he's thinking about the people on the island of Crete, they're all good for nothing, waste of spaces. And he says, look, remind the people, he's talking about the church, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. So he's saying to Titus, you've got to teach with authority, maybe authority is a big issue on the island. So look, actually, Christians have now got to submit to earthly authorities too. Subject to rulers, authorities. Be obedient to be ready to do what is good. So Crete's not known for being a nice place. It was noted, as we've seen, for uh, troublemakers, uh, aggressive people, liars. It was also known for pirates. I get my ears pricked up, anything about pirates, and I'm, I'm there, I'm listening and it was full of pirates. So you can imagine the sort of... Remember the old films you used to watch where they'll be swilling the big kegs of beer and stuff? It was like it was a right rotten place. So really, it was pretty obvious that they didn't want anything to do with those in authority. But Paul's urging Titus to make sure this Christian church leaves their old way of life behind. Whatever it was, And to make sure that they're behaving rightly. That they're not seen to be aggressors, troublemakers. Not even in the secular environment with the civil authorities. To be those causing the political unrest. To be causing trouble. But to leave their old life behind, verse 3. You know, sometimes Christians, uh, as we pursue godliness, as we seek to grow in our faith. You know, sometimes we do need to be reminded of what we were and what the gospel changed us from. Not to make us feel guilty, but just to remind us occasionally, sometimes maybe the depth of how amazing our transformation was. 
Some people, it was just, they were good people and they became Christians, you know. But for many people, just look what Paul says to Titus to remind them. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hated one another. You can imagine them reading it out on the island of Crete, knowing full light what they were all like. All Cretans are liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. They're all thinking, yeah, we didn't care for the authorities either. And here's Paul saying to Titus, you've got to tell them that they need to do what is right with their authorities. They need to be peaceable. They need to live lives that actually doesn't detract the gospel. It doesn't detract people away from the gospel. Because this church is a transformed church. And that's who we are, aren't we? We're a transformed people. I think about where I've come from, uh, from not being a Christian to a Christian. And, you know, I remember my mum telling my, my great auntie, and she was shocked. She was a Christian. She wasn't happy. She just said, I thought that would have been his brother who would have become a Christian. Because she was shocked. No, it's too bad. Yeah? Sometimes we can think we're too good as Christians. We're, 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 we're very, you know, we're sorted. And it shows actually how much we need God. And we needed God to change us and do something magnificent on us. I think of that verse where God says, you know, I'm going to create a new people. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. I'm going to change them and I'm going to, I'm going to implant my mark in their life, in their hearts, so that they want to listen to me and follow me. And that's what Paul's telling Titus to tell the church, to teach the church. He said that we're not to follow the patterns of society in Crete, but live differently in accordance with God's word and will. So that means, you know, in the way we respond and act to, to, towards those outside the church. I remember uh, having a conversation with someone and he said, well, well, we're all Christians, aren't we? We're all the same. But we're not, are we? We're not. We have a new understanding, a new way of life, and it's been a life that's transformed and changed through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a new outlook. We are different. The question is, are we seen to be different? And that's what Paul is urging Titus to teach the church. Are you being seen to be different? One way is obey your authorities. Jesus led that example, didn't he, when you know, they were trying to catch him with the coin. Give Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. We know there's always a line that we may have to cross, and that's when authorities in the world try and force us to do the things against God's will. But up until that point, we're to be peaceful. We're to behave in a way that doesn't detract people and say, oh, you're just like us, you lot. No, we're not. We're different. We're not to follow the patterns of society, but live differently in accordance with God's will and his word. So think about the way we, we act at work. Think about the conversations we have with our family and friends. We're not to slander. We're not to be the ones joining in saying, oh yeah, and that such a person did that, and that such a person did that. We're to be peaceable, considerate, always gentle with one another, and it's hard at times. But Paul is saying, for Christians to truly make an impact in the areas they're in, they need to be different. Not a false difference, not putting a, you know, a facade on, but truly different. People whose hearts and lives have been changed by the love of Jesus. We're to live under authority. 
the authority of God, knowing that the kingdom is not of this world, but yes, under worldly authority, so that we can be a good witness, so that we can win the world over with the gospel. I don't know how many times in Titus I've seen that word doing good, and right away you think of being a do-gooder. And we always see do-gooders in a negative light, don't we? Them pesky do-gooders. Look at them. They all think they're doing really good things and so on and so on. But that's what he's saying when he said, you know, do good works. We're to be do-gooders. But do-gooders who have been transformed through the gospel. Do-gooders who are seeking to glorify God, who have been transformed by the Lord Jesus that is actually serving him as king, wanting to do good works, works of righteousness, works that, that lead people to the gospel, that show people the Lord Jesus and how amazing he is. So often we think inwardly. But we are to be ready, Paul says, verse 1, to do whatever is good. Are you a do-gooder? I don't think I've ever been called a do-gooder before, but I'd like to be, and I think we should be calling each other do-gooders because we're working for Jesus, aren't we? We're seeing his example and his lordship, and we're saying, yeah, we want to follow you, and we want to do works. We want to do good things where we are to the people around us so that they may see the Lord Jesus and want to know more about him. So remind the people. Remind the people who we are now. And actually, we're not the same as what we used to be. We are changed people who are to be ready to do what is good. But verse 8 says, we're to st- Paul, uh, Paul says to Titus, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things. Wouldn't it be great if he said it right at the start of verse 4? Because that would have been remind there, there, there. But it doesn't. But the heart of verses 4 to 8 is that Paul is telling Titus, you've got to stress this amazing truth. This wonderful statement in verses 4 to 7 of the comprehensive nature of the gospel. Do it so that when you're telling people to be do-gooders, that it doesn't become legalism. That it doesn't become, oh, if I do good things, I'm going to get myself into heaven. If I do good things, God's going to be really pleased with me. No, Paul doesn't want that. He wants the church in Crete to always be reminded, to always understand the fullness of the grace of God. The grace of God that captures the heart, that transforms the body, the mind, everything. And that enables godly living and good works, which is the proof that our hearts have been changed. You know, it's as if Paul's saying, your church could be the most hopeful Christians in the whole of Crete. They could say that about us. Wouldn't that be nice? You Christians at St. Stephen's are the most hopeful Christians in the whole of Preston. But then he flips it on his head because he's saying, but the reason people will be attracted to you is not just because you're hopeful, but because they see your hopefulness lived out. They see your behaviour. That's why they might come and hear you preach or see what you're about or come to listen to Mark's Mark drama. Get another dig in for us, Andy. Why might they come? Because they are attracted to lives that are clearly changed, that are clearly displayed. And that, as we say, as we saw last week, that actually people want to know a little bit more about who we are. It was interesting, I got 
invited out on Friday night to the pub by some of the dads from school. They do it occasionally. And uh, when some of them had stopped laughing when they finally found out I was a vicar, I didn't really know some of them. Um, it was interesting. I thought, how can I be a witness here? So I got on some conversations. Somebody was asking me what I did. And, you know, I said, oh, isn't it all funerals and la, la, la. I said, hey, mate, how many jobs are you lot done where uh, you get to see a celebrity singing at a funeral? I can't even remember. He's gone out of my mind. Uh, you are the one and only. Who was he? Chesney Oates sang at <laughs> Alison. I, you'd, have, you'd have loved him. Do you remember Chesney Oates sang at a funeral for me in Bispam? They were like, really? Chesney Oates? Yeah. And they all started singing that in the pub. And then I was thinking, right, how, how, can I, you know, how can I talk about these things? I'm a normal person, but there is something distinctively different, and I'm not a freak. Because that's what they were trying to find out all night. Is this map weird? Well, yeah, because I had Chesney Oates sing at a funeral for me. Um, but it was making points through the night. I left early. I made sure I didn't have to, you know, to drink a lot. But it was, it was being attractive. And one bloke came to me and he said, you know, you're all right, you are. Really appreciate that. He said, No, you are. It's really interesting. I've been interested all night by what you've been talking about and the things you do. And he said, That's good, isn't it? I'm like, Yeah. You've had too much to drink, haven't you? Like, yeah. But you think it's a way in, isn't it? It's about being different. It's about being attractive. And, and, but it stems from a heart being changed. It does. And that's what Paul says to Tim Titus. You've got to stress. These things. You've got to stress verses 4 to 7 because it is by grace we are who we are today. It is by grace that the gospel and the Christian faith is attractive. It's not by anything else. It is purely by grace. Titus is to stress constantly the grace of God, but also these things. He's to stress God's kindness and his love, verse 4. He's to stress the Holy Spirit's work in our salvation, verse 5. He's to stress the grace of God in Christ Jesus, verse 6. I was reading about an older English preacher called Dr. Jowett. Anybody heard of him? I bet Gordon has. I forgot Gordon was going to be away tonight. Uh, English preacher called Dr. Jowett. He became a really famous preacher because all he ever preached, week in, week out, wherever he was, was the grace of God and the gospel. That's all he would ever preach on. And the reason he did this was because he wanted people, Christians, to, remind, to be reminded of that continual grace. And on that basis, that that grace leads to forgiveness. That grace led to our forgiveness when we became a Christian, but it is that continued, that training grace we talked about that leads to forgiveness today. So if we make a mess of our lives, the gospel reminds us of God's mercy, doesn't it? The prodigal son, he was reminded of his father, of his goodness. The gospel reminds us again and again that we are deserving of God's judgment, yet we are participants of his mercy. Wonderful truths about our salvation, which always points us to God and never to ourselves. The grace and mercy of God. I hope we all understand what grace and mercy mean. We learned a song when we were, on, we were in Devon and we went to a church in Exeter and they were singing a children's song. It's 
dreadful song, but it's proper instilled what grace and mercy. Grace is when God gives us the things we don't deserve. Mercy is when God does not give us the things we do deserve. And then it goes faster and faster and faster. Heaven knows it. That's coming to the old age. Grace is when God gives us the things we don't deserve. Mercy is when God does not give us the things we do deserve. And Paul is saying to Titus, remind them of the grace and mercy that they have been shown. And this is why it should be making a difference in our lives. Firstly, he says, he talks about verse 4, the kindness and love of God. Our Savior appeared. It's just wonderful, isn't it? In our rebellious, sinful state, we were spiritually dead in our trespasses. We were under the judgment of God, yet in his kindness. I love that. I think, how could somebody, somebody be kind in that situation? Think of Romans 3, where we're, we're stood condemned before God because of our, 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 our ways and our lives and our saying no to him. In that state, his kindness... I took the biggest strop on Nathan today that I ever have done, I think. And he didn't deserve it. And I thought, how can God show kindness to me when I couldn't show him anything but a nasty dad today? He's shown his kindness and love when he came into this world as his son, the Lord Jesus, to save us. It sends a tingle down me thinking about it. Kindness and love. What an amazing God. He held back his hand. He gave us mercy instead. It's a truly wonderful picture. The second thing is, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's probably my favorite chapter in the whole of the New Testament, I think, Titus 3. Uh, and I love the little intricate things that Paul just teases out. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. That word rebirth in the Greek is regeneration. It's only used two other times, or probably one other time. Jesus uses it in Matthew to talk about the end times. And it's referred to to John chapter 3 as well, where it's talking about being spiritually born again. The Holy Spirit saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. I think it's amazing. We, we, we see the Trinity, therefore, in our salvation, don't we? We see the work of God showing his love and kindness. We see, we see the, the wonderful act of grace in the Lord Jesus. But the Spirit was involved in our salvation, too. Regeneration is the spiritual change worked in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit in which his or her inherently sinful nature is changed so that he or she can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with his will. It extends uh, to the whole nature of man, altering his governing disposition, illuminating his mind, freeing his will, renewing his nature. It is an awesome biblical truth to know that in our salvation, the Holy Spirit was so active regenerating us, changing us, causing us, when we hear the gospel to respond in faith. The loving kindness of our God. The wonderful, regenerating work of the Spirit. And then this, um, I love it, verse 6. 
whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. If we're a Christian, we have been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when God looks at us sinful people, he sees Christ, and Christ covers us. And it is Christ's righteousness, it is his justification that we hold now. And he looks at us and says, you are a child of mine. And because we are justified, we have become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. (coughs) So as justified people, we have been welcomed into God's family. We are heirs, we are his children, and we don't just see God anymore as a distant being or anything like that. We see him as our personal, perfect, heavenly father. Isn't that truly amazing? That rebirth, that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, it it shows us that something has already happened to the Christian, but it points to something that is going to happen in the future. Eternal life. Eternal life. The work of the Spirit is not just to bring us to God, into His family through the work of Christ, but to point us forward so that we can have absolute confidence that death has no hold of the sinner because we are a saint in Christ and we have a place in God's eternal home. Aren't these amazing truths that we see? It's a great little chapter. It's a great little book. And that's why Paul says to Titus, Titus, you've got to stress these things. Because all this helps us look forward with certainty to the fullness of heaven and eternal life. But it also, it also reminds us of what God has done in our lives. What God has done through his grace and mercy in the Christian's life. That is our drive. That is why we want to be do-gooders. That is why we want to live for God, grow in godliness, do good things for him. Why? Because of those verses. And Paul says, stress it. Stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These are excellent and profitable for everyone, verse 8. And then verses 9 to 15. And Paul says we're to avoid foolish controversies. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments, quarrels about the Lord. These are unprofitable and useless. And then he goes on to the warnings. <coughs> Excuse me, I think he starts, he finishes, sorry, where he begins. If you look at verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. The people of Crete... Always lies evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Verse 16, they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. But not the church. Not not God's children. God's children are to live productive lives. Lives for Christ. Lives captured by God, changed by God. With that new perspective. And Paul says, do you know what? There are still people in the church who are going to stop that. 
I think he goes back to chapter 1, verse 10. The rebellious people, especially those of the circumcision group, those who were once Jews who became Christians, probably again forcing their Jewishness, their Jewish ways onto these new Christians, saying you've got to do this in order to be saved, all that business that we've thought about before in Galatians and so on. And he's saying that you can't have that in the church if the church is going to be united in the truth of what Christ has done. If our focus, our passion is on verses 4 to 7, people who come into the church and try and just destroy that will just bring the church down. It's foolish. They're foolish people. The people who just want to argue and quarrel about the law, about this or that, it's just unprofitable and useless. The church spends all its life just trying to debate and fall out and is this right, is that right? We're not going to do anything good. We're not going to live productive lives for God, are we? That's why we need to have unity. And part of Titus is in living in godliness, living and growing in our faith is unity. You can't get away from it. The knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. There's got to be truth there. Therefore, these people who are trying to destroy the church, who are turning households' lives upside down, Paul says, this is how you've got to deal with them. And it's not popular. You've got to warn them, warn them a second time. And actually, if they're not going to turn away from their sinfulness, if they're not going to repent and say sorry, then you've got to have nothing to do with it. Why? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the truth, for the sake of, of the church displaying God and the gospel to the world. Someone apparently came to our church when it was Jake's baptism. A friend of mine, Will, he's a retired teacher from our old church in Bispham. <coughs> he spoke to him. And this man started getting really aggressive with him and went on this huge rant about everything that was wrong with the Church of England why he doesn't celebrate Christmas, why he doesn't do this, why he thinks we've got this wrong, why we've got that wrong. And he went on and on and on for 15 minutes. And my mate Will, he's great as Will. He's only a small guy, but he's a right wily old fox. He said to him out there, and he said, can I stop you? So if you want to come to a church where you've got a church family where you know, want to grow in God's word, you've got Matt who will try and teach the Bible as faithfully as he can. If you want to join a church who will love you and, and uh, you know, welcome you in, then come. If you're going to be someone who's going to come and try and cause trouble, he'll kick you out. <laughs> I said, thanks, Will. He said, I didn't mean to say that, but he was winding me up, so I thought I'd just say it. I thought, oh, great. <laughs> but his point was, we don't want troublemakers in the church. We want the grace and mercy of God being displayed in the church, don't we? We want truth being displayed in the church. We want unity being displayed in the church. Because that is how the world needs desperately today to see the church. A church united in truth, growing in godliness, different, and a difference that draws people ultimately to God. So it's interesting how Paul finishes with, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. They must devote themselves to godliness in order to provide for urgent needs, and to live productive lives. <clears throat> so the question as we finish Titus, this great little book, I hope we go away and really think about our own personal godliness. 
And then think about the godliness of the church. Remember, I always said my friend when I lived in Devon said to me, you know, you don't count your congregation, you weigh your congregation. We've got a job to do. We've got a world to reach out to. So let's keep reminding each other of the kindness and love of God, the wonder of the gospel, and keep encouraging each other to walk in godliness and to pursue righteousness. And let's get doing great things for God together. Let's pray.